My name is Stephen Wozniak, and I'm your guest host on Art World, the White Hot Magazine of Contemporary Art podcast. My very special guest today is celebrated photographer, installation artist, and sculptor Sandy Skoglin. Her art often features surreal, serialized animal and human forms set in dramatic, painstakingly designed and colored studio sets and location sites that routinely elicit in viewers a distinct sense of familiarity, discomfort, humor, depth, and anxiety, often in a single viewing of a single work. Skoglund earned a BA in studio art and art history at Smith College in Northampton, Massachusetts, and earned both an MA and MFA in painting in 1972 from the University of Iowa. Skoglund's substantial body of work has been reviewed in the New York Times, Art Forum, Art News, Newsweek, the Chicago Tribune, Forbes Magazine, The Wall Street Journal, and numerous other prominent periodicals. Her works have been published in such books as Photography, The Definitive Visual Guide, The Photography Book, The Dictionary of Modern and Contemporary Sculpture, Gateways to Art, and Visions from America, among dozens of others. Her photograph, sculpture, and installations have been featured in numerous notable solo and group exhibitions in such institutions as the Centre Pompidou in Paris, the Art Gallery of Ontario, the Whitney Museum of American Art, the Museum of Contemporary Art in Bordeaux, and the Minneapolis Institute of Art, among many others. Her works are held in the permanent collection of the Chicago Art Institute Museum, the J. Paul Getty Museum, the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, the Museum of Contemporary Art, the Walker Art Center, and the Whitney Museum of American Art, among others. Skoglin moved to New York City in 1972, where she started working as a conceptual artist, initially utilizing repetitive process-oriented art production through the techniques of mark-making and photocopying. In the late 1970s, Skoglin taught herself photography in order to document her many conceptual ideas. Sandy's interest in popular culture and commercial picture-making strategies resulted in the directorial tableau work she is known for today. Skoglin lives and works in Jersey City, New Jersey, and teaches at Rutgers University in Newark, New Jersey. Sandy, we talked on the phone recently and discussed a few preliminary topics for today's interview and identified a classic question that often goes unanswered but should be looked at carefully in 2022. With the towering mountain of imagery and information that passes through our human consciousness from electronic media, how do artists break through that streaming data wall to affect change in viewers? Why make art at all in today's digital day and age? Well, I, I think the answer has a couple of dimensions to it. Uh, the first is that I think you are you don't have a choice. So you're asking why to the person, the citizen, the ordinary person, why make art? To the artist, I think they don't have much of a choice in in the matter. It's actually, I think, a form of surrendering to, to something beyond yourself, basically. And I feel as though the happy, you will be happier as an artist, the more you just surrender to it rather than resist it. I saw early on, I mean, from the moment my eyes popped open, that contemporary society, American society, is not terribly interested in in this this process of, of looking at yourself in the world. So go back to going back to your question about our being bombarded with so much really successful, really sophisticated entertainment, which gets to me, from my point of view, better all the time. It's very, it's shocking almost how uh, how far we've come from when I started to watch TV in the 50s. If you, if you look at how primitive that television, you know, the whole formula, everything about it in terms of entertainment was was really very simplistic compared to what we have now. But I think that for the artist, that's not us. So no matter how effective the bombardment is, in other words, how the quality of what is outside of us mm-hmm. that's coming at us, I think the this, this central question is still always primal and has to do with the sense of inner necessity 
and psychic survival. Um, I, I think it's very clear uh, to the artist. Now, what, how the society responds to that impulse is a completely different question. Um, I do want to talk about one other aspect to try to illustrate this, because I think some of these are big words. And the way I look at it is, imagine that you are a chick in an egg, because at some point we were not here. So you're a chick in an egg. Everything is fine. You're, it's dark. There's nothing else. It's just you and the darkness. And then give a little time and you're hitting the you're hitting the shell your head is hitting the shell and as that process continues uh-oh you're going to have to peck your way out you're going to have to you know escape that and imagine you're that chick you've been in this comfort or at least this sense of wholeness which now as you chip away at that egg Oh my God, <laughs> the, the, the world, I mean, white, color, other chicks, thousands of other chicks, the farmer, the this. So to me, that's uh, if the best way that I can describe kind of what we go through, what we go through as artists in a sense, right. we all go through it. I mean, not just artists, but the artist feels as though they want to tell the story. So. But they have to they have to accept the shock of the new experience is what you're saying. Right, right, right. Yeah. Many of your most cherished and well-known photographs feature multiples of animal sculptures that take over constructed interior, very human spaces, spaces and places a few hundred years prior that would have been the wilderness that those animals are truly designed for. So I'm going to ask you a few questions about animals and a few about spaces. I would love to learn a little bit more about your personal history with animals before they became icons in your work. Did you grow up with many pets, have experience with farm animals, or interact with wild animals that may have influenced your personal perception? I understand that you saw a great number of cats when you first lived in New York City and admired their survival abilities. What is it about small-sized grouped animals in particular that compelled you to serialize them in your work? My grandparents were both very naturally wedded to not so much the earth, but they had animals. So my uh, Swedish grandmother and her daughter, who's my aunt, they were notorious for having a cat over time. It wasn't oh, the same cat but cats that basically lived forever. <laughs> it, they, they, took, they took such good care, such loving care. I mean, the cat was a member of the family. And I mean, I, I just remember that there was this kind of amazement at, you know, of course we were inside. It's not as if the cat was really going outside. They were in an apartment house, but it, it, it was a, a very natural relationship to to the animal on my scottish grandparents side they came over from scotland and they had ducks in, really yeah and they lived in north weymouth mass which is um which is a suburb i mean it's not the country but they had a fenced in area in the back i used to play with the ducks loved playing with the ducks as very young you know one two three years old so that's the sort of long-term memory on that. And then my own family, my, my own self, I had a couple of cats at, growing up. My brother had a dog, Buddy, the beagle. <laughs> so we had them on and off. I would say they were not so much a part of the family with my parents and, and, and my brother and myself. And then uh, I kind of forgot all about them. Animals. I mean, I had so many other things on my mind and animals. I mean, we have to take care of them to some extent. So it wasn't until moving to New York, going through this fairly lengthy history that had to do with uh, minimalism, conceptualism, making art, being about 10 years too late for a lot of the kind of typical 
artist experience in terms of uh, lofts, lofts and living in lofts. I, I was just not able to ever have that until much later. I had a, had a loft, but they were always my studios were always in apartments, and even right now I'm I'm actually in an apartment. I just I don't remember seeing a lot of cats on the street in New York hmm. um, because New York is it's brutal. Uh, it, is. <laughs> it is and, I, and I had mixed feelings seeing the cats uh, on the street it was it was a sense of homage for me to to sculpt the first cat for radioactive cats but it was also a, a sense of almost horror that that we humans you know would kind of allow that to happen uh, that this animal had to struggle like that to survive so it was always these mixed feelings in the end, to me, I mean, they, they actually mean everything psychically and psychologically mm -hmm. because they are, to me, they are us. When, I mean, they're comforting because we think they are us or of us. They are our mirror in a sense for me, looking into the eyes of a animal, dog, cat, is, is like looking into another universe for me because it's a universe that I can't know. It's a universe with a brain, with a consciousness. And like so many things in life, if, if we can get out of our own skin and experience something else, particularly ourselves from another point of view, it's very healthy. I mean, it's very healing and uh, kind of miraculous, so. What do interior spaces mean to you and why are they so uniformly filled with animals, props, and sometimes people in your installations and photographs? You've talked a little bit about kinophobia or fear of empty spaces in past lectures and talks on your work. Did you develop a degree of kinophobia as a child recovering from polio? Were you alone during that time? Or does it come from your emergence through in transformation of minimalist art in the 1970s? You previously mentioned experiencing loneliness and isolation of studio life in the late 1970s also. Or was it something else altogether? Let's talk about the dynamic between these, these animals, props, and people that populate these spaces and these spaces. And about, you know, what is it about sort of stuffing them with stuff? Mm-hmm. Well... I think that one of the things that happened in the 70s is a critique of the white gallery space. Very common uh, in, in every, every discussion I had, there was a, a, a tremendous disdain for that. I think from that came my idea to eschew the sort of simplicity and the isolation, because the, re the reason for the white walls is to uh, kind of isolate whatever it is you're looking at, to take it, decontextualize it. For me, the, the use of these interiors was to take it down a notch from the kind of high religiosity and philosophical uh, high society aspect of white walls, big museums, that kind of uh, what I would call fracture in culture, and to, in a sense, bring it closer to the uh, to the street or to the ordinary or myself, actually, um, because a lot of what 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 we do, I think, is to just reflect ourselves. I mean, sure. who are we? Not that we're anything special, but just what what is it? You know, what are we? What are who are we? So I always, as a child, for example. When we lived in Maine, I must have been, see, I was in, must have been 10, 11, 12, preteen. I would love rainy days. Loved, mm. loved, loved rainy days mm. because I could stay inside and play Monopoly with my brother <laughs> and his friends. And we would have endless Monopoly games at my design, <laughs> my, my poor brother. <laughs> but uh, we would have them like, at the end, it would be like, oh, can I can I loan you some money so we can play again tomorrow? <laughs> <laughs> you ran the banks on Monopoly. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, so 
So I, I love interiors. I've always loved interiors. And actually you have a, a question about the polio and the hospital. My mother was a nurse. I feel very kind of familiar with that, with the hospitals. All throughout my childhood, my, because I had polio at three, the age of three, my brother and I were hospitalized in a, in a floating hospital, actually. It was a boat, a ship. Oh, wow. It was uh, moored, in, moored in Boston Harbor. It was very well known. It's called the floating hospital. I think it was all polio. I'm not sure. But it was, uh, for whatever reason, I believe it was the fear of, you know, it was a virus. It was a yeah. virus, just yeah. like what we've been through. Yeah. We'd isolate the patients, I guess. Yeah. Thought, uh, they, were, they didn't know. You know, they didn't know how you got it. For me, it's very hard to remember back to that period because I was three years old. I do remember a couple of incidents, but it's possible that there again, you know, uh, unlike some children, we were not in the baby stroller going outside. It could, it could be, it comes from that. But my use of proliferation and filling the empty spaces is, was originally to, to kind of counteract the emptiness that I uh, was studying and had experienced in the 70s through minimalism, which was, you know, very spare, very, you know, objects were not, no one was interested in objects of any kind. Painting was dead. I mean, it was a very uh, drastic kind of uh, feeling. Yeah. So when it came to the 78, 79, 80, um, having been through all of that purism, I felt as though I wanted to stuff everything back in, frankly. So that's where the, the fear of empty spaces comes more from my study of culture, because the you talk about kinophobia, but there's also just the phenomenon in art, too. Right. Folk art, right. it tends to be like that. Uh, Islamic art, there's, hard, there's no empty space, I don't believe. So. Oh, yeah. In the late 1970s, after you created notable photo works of lunch meats on similarly patterned formica counters and peas on gridded plates over similarly gridded tablecloths, you began shooting disposable coat hangers, as well as forks and knives on walls, floors, ceilings, and surfaces that populate rooms, as well as other photo tableaus. These led to your mature iconic works like Radioactive Cats and Revenge of the Goldfish, and others in the early 1980s. What big shift in you and your artistic experience and process changed the work so significantly in such a short period of time? From ostensibly minimal, colorful, playful, and ironic imagery meant for the photographic medium, to the elaborate rooms that featured the animal multiples and live human models on monochrome backgrounds, which almost allude to narratives in both photographic and installation form. I was learning photography. It's very simple, actually. I mean, I had been teaching photography, but with without a lot of sophistication as far as knowing the te technique and technology. Once I turned the camera towards the food still lives in 78, it became clear to me that if I wanted to produce a picture that reflected what I saw with my eyes, I needed to get much better at the technique of photography, the equipment, lighting. So with the still lifes, I had a vision. I mean, I knew what I wanted to achieve. And at the time, uh, photography was still in its infancy. Art photography, colorful art photography was really in its infancy. So, so I was working off of commercial photography techniques and strategies. So that filled my time trying to answer a question in terms of how I experienced it. So I would was constantly going to the store uh, in New York. There was a guy named Joel there who ran the counter and, and uh, all New Yorkers were going there. It was olden camera. We were all learning, I was learning photography by buying kits and, and mm -hmm. doing doing work. So you spoke to other photographers at rental houses and no, not rental in. houses. Okay. No, this was a, this was a retail a photography store, but you would run into all your photo art friends there. 
buying film, buying paper, and giving you advice. I mean, I remember talking to this guy, Joel, who was very kind to me, who was a supervisor. How can I get such and such a, you know, since this is not happening right? And he says to me, you know, have you ever tried painting? <laughs> You're like, yep. You know, so that. that kind of says it all. It's like trying to make an impossible photograph. Right. Um, uh, I loved the process of the artificiality of commercial photography really grabbed a hold of me. Given that, given this sort of long year, year and a half learning curve, uh, making my own prints, so on and so forth. If you look at it more from the point of view of what I was doing, I was taking a picture of a tabletop. I was going out and buying and finding things to photograph. These were food. Uh, almost all were food. Uh, some were just patterns. The process was shopping and buying. So going out into New York. At the time, we still had in New York Woolworths 5 and 10 cent store. So that was one of my favorite haunts. But to talk about the how the transition happened to the other objects, it was very smooth because I had this vision of destroying the space. So the lighting was deliberately washed everywhere so that you weren't quite sure what you were looking at. Am I looking at a drawing? It's a pattern. What is it? And then as you got closer, hopefully, if the it was a good photograph, you could kind of make out, oh yeah, those are peas, you know. So uh, the tabletop uh, scale then just moved to an apartment, basically, in within a, within a month. So I finished the 78 Food Still Love series. And then I said, okay, I'm just going to back the camera up now. And instead of doing a tabletop, I'm going to do the room. So that that's it. I mean, there were no big conceptual anythings. Now, at this point with the room, now you're into architectural digest, right? right? In terms of style, photo right. style. Right. And because I was just really relishing gallivanting through all of this commercial photography styles, which the fine art world had completely dismissed at that point in time. Now we have a, a cross-fertilization, but in the 70s, there wasn't. The architectural digest became a model then for me in terms of space. So the rooms became like the tabletop, then filling it first with found objects. Many of those objects actually were, were from the food still lifes. So I had bought a lot of plates. So my first large ins installation, if you want to call it, was had plates all over. Uh, which came from that, from the uh, still lives. You caught the attention of a rather historically important art dealer, Leo Castelli, who gave you a solo show in 1981 at Castelli Graphics, then later at Leo Castelli and Castelli Uptown. What was the experience like of installing that for a show? You created a site-specific installation as well as exhibited your photo work at Castelli Graphics, right? How was the work received critically and commercially? And what were your feelings about your entree into that level of the art world at that time in your life? Yes, well, uh, the first really important thing to uh, mention in your question is that I it was really not Leo Castelli. Hmm. Leo had a downtown gallery in Soho and Twani Castelli, his wife, had Castelli Graphics Uptown on 77th Street. So the person who gave me my first show was Marvin Heiferman, who uh, is a distinguished photography writer and has written many books on, on photography. Marvin was the director there at, at Castelli Photographs. And this was a period of time when you could make an appointment and show your work to people. Wow. <laughs> I mean, it was, yeah, it was wow. fairly... You know, it's not that easy, but, you know, you could kind of uh, do that. So yeah. I remember showing him the food still lives yeah. wow. in 78, and he put the work in a summer show. It did get a little bit of a mention, which was great. And then a year went by, 
And I think now it would be 1980. So I would have done radioactive cats, mm -hmm. which is a whole other process. But I brought the photograph in to the gallery. I mean, he, he was very pivotal. He was pivotal in, in introducing me. And we got along, I, I thought, extremely well. We really understood what we were uh, trying to achieve, you know, which was a kind of new way to consider photography in, in right. 1980. What what was that like for you emotionally, you know, for that to be your sort of entree into that particular level of the art world at that time in your life? How did that how did that feel? What was your experience like? Or were you just worried about the work? Well, it, I mean, it felt it felt fantastic in a way that and the best way I can explain it is it's as if you're in a dark closet doing mm -hmm. your work right. uh, with no no one paying any attention whatsoever and that should go on for quite a while i think in my opinion i mean you really should develop your sense of authenticity but having a show of any kind really that has any impact was like the door was opening that door that's the best way i can explain it because then people saw the work it was more like people saw the work and they started to understand it mm -hmm. as opposed to working in in the dark right there was a discussion essentially you opened yeah. a, a discussion right. uh, at least culturally and probably critically too i'm sure right right don't forget that a lot of people hated it and that's kind of important to talk about because right. i wanted that I, I i really wanted to provoke the photography I don't know, Cognoscenti, whatever, the photograph standard photography narrative. Mm -hmm. So there, there was a there was a lot of uh, discontent going on at the same time as as my work was emerging. So that was another kind of interesting phenomenon. Not, and of course, mine wasn't the only work of that type. Sure, sure. There, I mean, there were others. There were, I guess. Dave Chappelle and Cindy Sherman and a few others, although I, I still think yours is grouped a little bit differently than theirs, my perception of it is, at least. I have another question for you. Do you consider yourself a colorist? When did you first discover monochromatic art and what was its effect on you? Clearly, you made a choice to pair colored objects, which oppose each other on the color wheel, and also pop pretty dramatically next to each other. Why did you choose these colors and color groupings? Well, I remember studying sculpture in, uh, in the 60s at Smith College and being completely uninterested in it because it, there was no color, very mm -hmm. little color, or the books and way that it was presented to us were, they were circumventing. I mean, there was Alexander Calder after all. So by and large, in general, it, it seemed to me that sculpture being about form was presented to me. It's, it just seemed to be to me to be not as interesting as painting. So that was one thing. I never studied color. I don't understand actually how you can study color because, <laughs> <laughs> well, to me, it's a, a visual, totally visual. You see it or you don't you play with it, which is what I did, which I do. But if you're playing with it, you want it, you don't want it to be in charge of you. You you want to be in control. Right. So when I was in painting at the University of Iowa, they would talk about things like that colors coming forward or going back. This was the height of abstract painting. Right. And I again I'm going, what what are they what do they mean by that? You know? Right. Um, but it was through color that I decided to do photography because my, my work really is almost all in color. My photography work is almost all in color. And that was a choice that had to do with actually this kind of commercial, tacky at the time, tacky commercial uh, advertising kind of look and feel. So that was the beginning of color for me. And mm -hmm. then I do remember with radioactive cats. Mm -hmm. So once the work slowed down, meaning with radioactive cats, deciding that I'm going to sculpt the mm -hmm. work, some mm -hmm. of it, that it, that really slowed the process down like drastically. It allowed my mind to rest 
but it also allowed my mind to play around with, um, I'm sculpting this cat in plaster, it's white, what color is it? So I would play around in my mind with the colors and, and with radioactive cats. I was often looking for the, the most unnatural mm-hmm. um, color to draw attention to the fact that these are sculpted and they're not re- actual animals. Not that that makes it interesting, but that was my thought process at the time, was really artificiality. Your work has often been called and classed surrealist. I would almost say it has a touch of magic realism prominent in South American literature and painting. How do you identify your work? Are they dreamscapes? Are you an active dreamer? And do you remember and record your dreams? And if so, do they influence your work ultimately? I don't dream very much. And what I do dream is pretty horrific. So uh, I'm a screamer, my poor husband. I scream when I have these uh, nightmares. So I've never looked into why. I wouldn't be surprised if it's because of the uh, being three years old in the hospital. But it could be that. But I'll never know unless I really spend the time. And maybe even then you would not ever really know. But it's a waking dream for me because reality is a dream. I mean, my my philosophy is there really is no reality. There is no reality. I mean, you know, it's it's either this or it's that or I mean, your reality, what you're looking at, experiencing completely different from mine. It's that kind of perspective. Yeah. Exactly. Or, or you could say it's all reality, but it's just so yes. wildly subjective. Yeah. I mean, if you think about what we can know, what we can actually know, you know, and the growth of science, which is just awesome, right? Uh, information, information is amazing. But yet, no matter what, there's still so much that we can't know, you know, and, and so many other ways to look at things. I mean, that's one of the reasons why we, we still have religion. If there were no art and no religion, what would life be like? It would just be completely fact-based, right? And everyone would participate in probably the cultural norms. It would be kind of uh, horrific, kind of- It'd be awful. Yeah. 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 Where would would we be? We'd be sitting on the outside of the town with the medicine man and (laughs) the village idiot and, you know- God stepchildren with you way, way on the perimeter of the village. That's really funny. I recently saw a short video clip of your elegant and ethereal work, Winter, from 2020, installed at the McNay Art Museum in San Antonio, Texas. The slow one-minute tracking shot begged what I think is an obvious question. Would you consider shooting motion picture clips of your tableaus and installations, or animating them even? What would that do to the work? How would it change the meaning and perception of the work? With a new online and public art audience hungry for short video content and NFTs, are creating videos a possibility for you at this stage in your career? I mean, I for one would love to see Sandy Skolan videos recorded with sound effects, soundtracks, and dialogue even, which still retain the playfulness and mystery of your photo works. I I have thought about it. I started my earliest opinion about art history, again, backing up, was that fine art is makes no sense whatsoever. And filmmaking is it. Filmmaking is the art form of of my time. And based on that, I mean, there's Arnold Hauser, there are a number of art historians who wrote about this, about the kind of progressive bankruptcy of fine art and how how filmmaking kind of solves that it kind of closes the problem because you're automatically dealing with an audience whereas in fine art you know you can be dealing with a really tiny audience of maybe even just one you know (laughs) (laughs) the artist right the artist yeah (laughs) but Here's my here's my dilemma. I first of all, I did do some films. So when I was at film at, when I was at uh, at uh, Smith College, yeah. I did it. I did a, a stop motion claymation thing. 
that was an individual production thing, you know, just all by myself. I bought a camera and it came to life. You know, it was fun. It did its thing. It was stop motion. After that, I actually applied to NYU film school. Really? Yes. And almost went, almost went. And this would be 68. I even did a summer, I did a summer workshop there. We, uh, that and that is as you may know that film school is based on the hollywood format so there's a director and you know they take Mm -hmm. for granted it's not so much the auteur author doing it so i so that's one of several things that i've done in film uh none of which has really ended up feeling satisfying to me and i think that it's um the thing that you do the the film itself might be good or not, but the collaborative aspect of it was not satisfying for me. I, there's something about yeah. the existential, and I'm still very dedicated to that, uh, particularly during COVID, this whole idea that, you know, this is it, you're by yourself, whatever it is that you do, it's it's just that, you know, right. it's no big collaborative theatrical thing. Recently in 2021 and now again in 2022 at Rule Gallery in Denver, Colorado through July the 23rd, you have been exhibiting outtakes, images from different camera angles and varied installation setups that show your other views of your past classic photo works. You mentioned before that COVID isolation initially drove you inward to review many of your greatest hits in order to create and show these works. I think we all sort of reviewed our life's work when life came to a screeching halt at that time. Were there other reasons for doing this? What was it like seeing these photos and some sculptural elements out in the world as never before? It it was actually very simple. I learned that I had really changed how I think about things as I went through these old negatives, right, from... 1980 all the way up to 2001. I guess we should start with the idea that everything stopped. Everything really stopped. It it froze totally, at least for me, it froze completely in early 2019. It did not feel that bad. It didn't feel that bad um, because it gave me an excuse to do things that when you're on the wheel of society, all the expectations and what are you going to do next and your show in two years from now, which, you know, museums are like that, it really kind of was unexpected positive thing in terms of the feeling of it, Mm -hmm. um, because it gave me enormous amount of time that I never would have had. I just never would have had that kind of psychic time. So that's sort of what started the process of of looking at those negatives. And then my process of that work was not to move the camera. So these outtakes actually are the same exact picture. They're cropped closer in, and it is a different negative because I would bring the models in and direct them to do things, interact with each other. So depending on the, if it was early work, then it could be 10 or 20 uh, outtakes or later work could be 30, 40, 50 outtakes. But I just couldn't help but wonder, what do those look like? I mean, because, I mean, why would I even ask that question if, I were like involved with some new project that some museum, you know, some kind of cultural expectation. So the, it was not, I mean, we can, you can get off of the merry-go-round. Yes. <laughs> you can get off the merry-go-round, but when the merry-go-round itself stops, yep. that, you know, that's just new. <laughs> I think it, it is. Was, it's a shock. Oh, it's a real shock. It was quite a shock for most of the artist friends that I know most of us did not feel so bad. It was an opportunity to do things we ordinarily might not have done. So that's how I look at them. And in going through them, I'm looking at them and I'm saying, 
I know why I chose, let's say, uh, let's take Revenge, Revenge of the Goldfish. Goldfish yeah, yeah. yeah. And so with Revenge of the Goldfish, the mother came with her son and I was, it was very early for me in my career. So did not do a lot of outtakes, but when I was sculpting the fish, which are made out of clay, when they are fired and everything, I mean, they were fairly big and yeah. kind of heavy, yeah. scratchy. Yeah. I mean, they're fired clay. Yeah. Um, but all along, I'm sculpting the fish going, I can't wait to put one of these on the model. To do all of that persistent work, each one you want it to be better than the last, at least I did. I wanted it to be more alive than the last or some kind of more interesting version of the last one so that it's not like, oh yeah, I'm just going to get my lunchbox and right. sit there for an hour and make one more fish. You right. know? <laughs> or it, cast or replicate the same fish. Over yeah, no, it's yeah, it, yeah. that whole process was very critical to me in terms of being nourishing all by itself. So looking back at the the photo shoot, I remembered the photo shoot, and that was part of the process was the photo shoot. Okay, in comes the young man and his his mother, and I try to put the fish on his shoulder to take the picture, mm -hmm. and he he moved. He he, you know, it was it was irritating to him. And so I took, I think only one, I think I only have one with the fish on his shoulder. <laughs> And since he moved, the negative is a little blurry because he's moving because I was doing long exposures at the time, not flash. So when it came down to the initial editing, I'm going, oh, no, that he's moved. No, no good. Out, out. You know, mm -hmm. so all through that whole decade, it was a, a kind of a person who would be very ruthless. That's how mm -hmm. I would describe myself. Mm -hmm. Ruthless on on my work ruthless in deciding okay in out this so then to be go back with another idea of well you know maybe i was wrong right <laughs> maybe, yeah, I was wrong. Yeah. maybe i was wrong if not wrong then at least the outtake is as good as you know right. if not if not you know so or it offers a different dimension of my thinking so so in every case of the outtakes, I only picked photo shoots that had significant outtakes because there are only 12 in, in, the, in that series and, right. and it's done. Sandy, I'd love to learn a little bit more about your experience at the, was it the University of Iowa? Right. Uh, the university is in Iowa City. The University of Iowa has the Writers' Workshop, that internationally known. Vito Acconci went there, oh, yeah. for example, as a writer, a poet. So it when I went there in the uh, late 60s, early, very early 70s, it would have been 69, 70, and 71. I was there mm -hmm. for three years. It was um, just amazing. I mean, I for me. Now, yeah, yeah. I, you know, so sometimes we have to look at life and we say, oh, my God, life was so good to me at that time. Right. Yeah. And this was a case of that because I had suffered so much. I had lived at home, taught junior high school art for a year on the fly, had no clue. I mean, I did know what I was doing, but I mean, it, every day was torture and painful, you know, disciplining these kids. They're throwing clay around. <laughs> <laughs> junior high, junior high. <laughs> Batavia, Illinois. <laughs> God. So it's sort of like, get me out of here. My other background had been the East Coast, had been Smith College, which was excellent school. very uh, intellectual. They really adhered to the Greco-Roman hierarchy of knowledge, meaning that the philosopher is the king, then uh, an artist is below that, an artisan just making things. So so, for example, when I decided at Smith to uh, major in actual practical art, studio art, that meant that you could not graduate with honors. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. And, and Princeton has something along those lines as well. I mean, it's there. It's there. Wow. In the, in the Ivy League. 
Princeton, I I did some teaching there, just a little workshop, you know, the yeah. business thing. And they, I don't believe, I don't know if anyone gets tenure in the visual art department, but you can't uh, major in it. You can't major in art. Wow. Studio art. Today, even today. I don't believe so. Junior high, Batavia, teaching, living at home in Illinois. Um, we lived in Naperville, Illinois, which was at the time like your cookie cutter housing development, brand yeah. new houses, a little twig of a tree in front. Right, right. Um, or suburbia, yeah. Yeah, now it's all overgrown and very different. I mean, trees, you know. Uh, yeah. but, but going to the University of Iowa was like, it was really like another planet because culturally I needed people to be nice to me. And they had not been nice that nice in, in the educational framework of, of the East Coast. There's yeah. a kind of a critical, you know, uh, oblig obligatory critical kind of uh, relationship with the student. They were just all forgiving. They looked at your work and there was not negative criticism, but there was a lot of talk. We read the art magazines constantly. We talked about going to New York. So uh, again, it would be the, you know, 70s. Mm -hmm. So New York was uh, on the verge of bankruptcy or already was in bankruptcy. So we would have visiting artists come and we would ask, you know, is New York dead? It was kind of a time when everything was dead. I mean, yeah. I don't know if that's the era when God is Dead appeared on the Time magazine cover, but there was just a lot of death. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of death, death of painting, death of God, death of religion. No, yeah, painting made no sense whatsoever. Right. So painting was all about itself and, uh, and, and right. what have you. So it was that forgiveness and the diversity. So... I don't know if one could ever find so much diversity in an art school as Iowa was at that yeah, time. Yeah. They had, I don't, I never met her or did much, but they had jewelry in a very respectable uh, wing. They had sculpture. They had multimedia. Uh, I believe they had gotten a Rockefeller grant for intermedia. Yeah. So they were very focused on new media. And at the same time, they had this guy, Mauricio Blazanski, who had a, a very extensive reputation in, in intaglio printmaking, which is, I mean, you know, old. I mean, it's sort of classic. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And um, I myself had the good fortune to be the teaching assistant for an art conservator of all things. And I learned uh, all about the history of painting techniques from gesso making to mm -hmm. grinding your paints. And, and so you could, it was like a cornucopia of, you could do whatever you wanted. And there just wow. wasn't that kind of no, you know, no. You even even with your declared concentration, it was sort of like, hey, this is your yeah, plan, no one plan ever field. Yeah, no it an eye. I mean, I, I remember being at, at uh, Smith College and wanting to study film history at the University of uh, Massachusetts. Across yeah, down the road. The yeah. yeah. And the professor was very, like, uh, superciliously, you know, that's not academic. Uh, he let me do it, but yeah. it, was, it came with attitude. So this kind of openness was really nourishing for me all three years there was there's a big grant wood to, of course uh, the painter yeah big name there and i believe it was the school uh one of the earliest mfa programs after world war ii so it was uh it began then you know after world war ii um but this kind of um you could make friends with people who were very involved with uh new york latest conceptualism and minimalism ideas and we had visiting artists coming for that at the same time if you wanted you could you know be part of some other group that was interested in figurative painting and there was no i mean of course we gossiped and what you know <laughs> what's well, inevitable we don't like right? that person's work you know but but ultimately <laughs> interestingly enough the judgment was not so much about what they were doing we don't, I don't like that 
person's work because it's too conceptual. Sure. No, it was more about it's really not authentically that person's expression. Interesting. Yeah. So there was a tie to the maker as much as the right. object it's in the very room. Very heavily critical of why are you doing this? Is this really what you want to do? Is this, is this you? Voice? Yeah. 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 I, and, and that's a good thing to carry with you through the art world, that kind of sense, you know. That um, authenticity. Yeah. 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 That you're, you know, you're fine with it. If nobody pays any attention, that's okay. Because yeah. you made it, you know, you made your, you know what you're doing. You've, you've reached your goals and then you bring it out into the world. It was just fabulous. Now I looked online and apparently they have a brand new, huge museum going up there. They do. It's opening in the fall. Um, yeah. It's uh it's pretty exciting. I think it's, um, see if I can remember the name of it. I interviewed Joy Sai of the uh -huh. uh, Clifford Steele Museum recently, who was, um, who presided over, she was the chief curator. It's the Stanley Art Museum, I believe. At right, the, there, right, there. exactly, exactly. Yeah. So yeah. that uh, should be a game changer, you know, for those students. Yeah, it's got a big, it's got a huge exhibition space, a huge, you know, storage and archival space, you know, obviously a lot of offices for the curatorial staff and exhibition staff. It's a, yeah. it's a, it's a, I think it's a big deal and probably just a big cultural deal for the area period besides nice. campus, you know, besides students and staff, you know, sort of just as a cultural beacon for the area for, for people who just want to look at art, which is great. Thank you again, Sandy, so much for talking with us today on Art World, the White Hot Magazine of Contemporary Art podcast. To learn more about Sandy Scogland, go to sandyscogland.com. That's S-A-N-D-Y-S-K-O-G-L-U-N-D.com. Rule Gallery, that's R-U-L-E-G-A-L-L-E-R-Y.com. Ryan Lee Gallery, that's R-Y-A-N-L-E-E-G-A-L-L-E-R-Y.com. Or Sandy Scogland Art, that's at S-A-N-D-Y-S-K-O-G-L-U-N-D-A-R-T on Instagram. To learn more about me, your guest host, Stephen Wozniak, go to stephenwozniakart.com. That's S-T-E-P-H-E-N-W-O-Z-N-I-A-K-A-R-T.com. Or Stephen Wozniak Art, that's at S-T-E-P-H-E-N-W-O-Z-N-I-A-K-A-R-T on Instagram. To learn more about the White Hot Magazine of Contemporary Art, go to whitehotmagazine.com. That's W-H-I-T-E-H-O-T-M-A-G-A-Z-I-N-E.com or at White Hot Magazine. That's at W-H-I-T-E-H-O-T-M-A-G-A-Z-I-N-E on Instagram. And finally, thank you for joining me, your guest host, Stephen Wozniak, on another fine episode of Art World, the White Hot Magazine of Contemporary Art podcast.